Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. We live in an age of extremes. We talk about it every day with respect to the economic divide, the political divide, the racial divide, and the gender divide, particularly with respect to gender. How can we explain the election of the most patriarchal president ever in an era of Me Too? And remember, one whose election was supported by the majority of white women who voted. Today in our politics, we devote a great deal of attention to how we can address that economic divide. Think tanks and candidates pursue it endlessly. Pundits and political scientists opine daily, almost hourly, on our socio-political divide. So how can we reconcile the seemingly successful attacks on patriarchy by the Me Too movement on the one hand and its powerful persistence on the other? It's a kind of cognitive dissonance that takes a great thinker about these subjects to try and understand and address. That's what Carol Gilligan does in her new book, Why Does Patriarchy Persist? Carol Gilligan is a professor of humanities and applied psychology at New York University. She's the author of the seminal works in A Different Voice and The Birth of Pleasure. She's one of the most influential feminist thinkers of our time. And it is my pleasure to welcome Carol Gilligan back to this program to talk about her book, Why Does Patriarchy Persist? Carol, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, Jeff, thank you so much. Thank you. And I should say right at the top that it's a co-authored book that I wrote with Naomi Snyder, who was my former student at NYU. Thank you for adding that. One of the things about patriarchy is it's a word, obviously, that's been around for a very long time, but somehow of late it has become so much more in our popular consciousness. Talk about why do you think that is, first of all. You know, it's, it's really, when Naomi and I started on this project, <clears throat> we thought we were going to have problems with the word patriarchy because it was really a sort of, uh, you know, eyes glaze over word, <laughs> and people thought it's, it's so over. You know, it's, it's of the past, it doesn't exist anymore. And then Trump got elected, and suddenly the word patriarchy was in the New York Times almost every day. And it was just part of our current vocabulary. And, um, you know, I first used this word in, the birth of, in my book, The Birth of Pleasure, because I was trying to name the force that uh, I had been studying, I had been doing this work with girls, and listening to girls to narrate their experiences in coming of age, you know, when they move from childhood into adolescence, when they move from being girls to being perceived as young women, you know. And I felt they were up against something that was real. And it, I had to name it. It wasn't just resisting their mother or resisting, you know, whatever. They were really up against something that was basically saying to girls, look, you know, if, if you want people to like you, if you want to have relationships, uh, really don't say what you're really thinking and feeling. Don't say what you know on the basis of experience. Don't say what you see. Figure out what other people want you to say and say that. And so, for example, one of the girls in my study, she was the valedictorian of her high school class. She got into every college she applied for. Um, and she said, if I were to say what I was feeling and thinking, no one would want to be with me. My voice would be too loud. You know, and I thought, where is this coming from? You know, because some of the shrewder and more articulate girls were naming 
this was, I mean, basically, psychologically, this was incoherent. If I'm not saying what I'm feeling and thinking, nobody will be with me. I mean, I'm not in my relationships. What are, oh, because she went on to say, but you have to have relationships. And I remember saying to her, but if you're not feeling and saying what you're feeling and thinking, then where are you in these so-called relationships? And she saw it, but it was really a problem. So I thought, I have to name this. And I named it patriarchy. And, you know, I had a sense of using almost a taboo word, you know, <laughs> that my books would be put on some sort of faraway shelf, you know. <laughs> it was like a word that you used to talk about ancient tribes or faraway cultures. And I realized that, no, patriarchy, uh, it's, it's, in my mind, patriarchy is, it's the opposite of democracy, you know, because in democracy, everyone has a voice. That's what it means, basically, because if you don't have equal voice, you can't deal with conflicts in relationships. And patriarchy privileges the voices of those men who are seen as the fathers, you know, the elders, the ones who have access to truth and knowledge and power. I mean, just listen to Donald Trump. I mean, he says, it's true because I say it. I don't need facts. I don't need anything else. It's just, I say it. I know it because I'm the father. I'm the winner. I'm the president. I'm the, do you know what I'm saying? I'm right. the patriot. There it is. It's raw patriarchy and it's out in the open. And then you get, you know, me too. I have a voice. That's democracy. So we're having the drama of patriarchy versus democracy played out now right in front of our eyes. And for a long time, the the common assumption was, the simple assumption was, that the reason patriarchy persisted is because those that were in those positions of power and authority simply didn't want to give up that privilege and power. What you argue... Which, which, in, in, which is true. Right. And, and what you and, argue in this book is a different approach to that. Right. Well, that's what started this book. I told you Naomi was my student at the time. She was a human rights lawyer. She came from the London School of Economics to NYU, and she took my seminar um, that I teach with David Richards called Resisting Injustice. And the week we read The Birth of Pleasure, she wrote in her weekly reflection paper uh, that as she was reading uh, about the girls in my studies and so forth, her mind kept going to the death of her father and how she, in response to the death of her father when she was five years old, she, you know, that loss was so searing that after that, even though what she wanted was love, you know, to love and be loved, it's what we all want, really, she was afraid to because it would expose her to, to loss. And she, had, and she thought it was just her story, just her loss of her father. And it made her think, wait a minute, does patriarchy persist in part because it's a defense against loss because once you set up a hierarchy basically you know you you break relationships and so what patriarchy what one of the things patriarchy does is it says you know basically you can't have certain really equal relationships where you're really seen and known and loved for yourself and so forth because where you have a voice and also have relationships. But if you don't have relationships, you don't have loss. So is patriarchy... And honestly, it blew my mind. I'd never thought of that. 
In other words, was there a psychological function as well as what you said, Jeff, which is people in power don't, you know, rush to give up their power and privilege. They'll, they'll defend it and fight for it. Was there also a psychological function holding patriarchy in place? And that's what we, we went on a journey to explore that question. And uh, that's, that's why we wrote the book, because we were actually astonished by what, you know, what we discovered. Is it about loss, per se, or is it also insecurity? And, and if it's that, too, what is the nexus between that and loss? Well, if you think about um, insecurity, I mean, in other words, if, if I really open myself to another person, um, you know, and, and really desire to, to be close to them and, and have a relationship with them, then it's going to arouse, arouse my insecurities. Will I, you know, if they really knew me, would they love me? You know, can I really be known and loved? I mean... I think that's an insecurity in some sense. We all have to a greater or lesser extent. I mean, we we expose ourselves to being rejected, to being hurt, to being. We you can't you can't love someone without becoming vulnerable. I mean, look, even having children. I mean, what is the thing of when you have a child, you have your heart walking around outside of yourself. <laughs> you know, you suddenly. That love makes you vulnerable, so that's what I mean. And and it's the way in which that fear, that insecurity, that fear of loss is exploited that seems to be such a powerful driver of this patriarchy. Well, what we, I mean, so I said to Naomi, let's explore this. This is this is really intriguing to me. So I said, you have to start. Let's start by reading people who have written about loss. And so I sent her part to to read. She read Freud, and she read Melanie Klein, and then she read John Bowlby, you know, who did these studies, who observed young children dealing with loss. First of all, children who, in, in England, Bowlby lived in, in, in England, he taught at Oxford, and there were children who were sent out of London because of the bombings to make them safe and sent to live with families in Oxford. He observed these children and then children who went to hospital because in those days, if a child went to the hospital, they didn't let parents stay with them the way we do now. Um, And so he observed children dealing with loss and he found, he described what he saw. The first response to loss is protest. Protest, which then galvanizes the person, the child, to in a sense, you know, repair the relationship, to, to find the person, to engage the, the other person, uh, you know, to repair the rupture, the break in the relationship. And, um, you know, he has a wonderful quote of a little girl, who, you know, I think who was sent to the hospital, something, who says, Mommy, where was you? <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. And then he said, when the protest is ineffective... The next place the child goes is into despair, you know, a kind of listlessness and kind of loss of energy. And then the final move is to detachment. And he says, replacing people with objects. You know, I'm, I'm not going to place my, myself in the hands of other people. I'm going to have objects that I can basically control, replace, and so forth. And so... 
I thought what was stunning to Naomi and me is that's the trajectory I had traced in the girls in my study, that they would protest this loss of relationship, you know, that they felt if they couldn't say what they were feeling and thinking, they lost their sense of being able to be present, you know, with themselves in connection with others. So they registered the loss, they protested, and if it was effective, ineffective, you'd see a kind of depression or despair set in, and then a detachment, you know, kind of, I don't care. So um, I said, wait a minute, the trajectory Bowlby is describing as responses to, to loss is the trajectory I was seeing in the children in my studies, the adolescent girls and the young boys in the work that I then did with Judy Chu, who wrote this book, When Boys Become, quote, Boys, meaning when they begin to look like boys are often said to be. Anyway, um, so that was our first discovery. Then Bowlby identified pathological responses to loss, meaning ways of responding to loss that stand in the way of ever making relationships again. And he called it compulsive detachment or compulsive caregiving, compulsive self-reliance, like, I don't need relationships. What do you think? I'm a baby. You know, I'm not somebody who needs a mommy. I don't need anyone to take care of me. I take care of myself, that kind of thing. Or if I care for others, sort of, you know, compulsively, maybe someday someone will care for me. And we thought, wait a minute. (laughs) These are the patriarchal ideals of manhood and womanhood. The sufficient man and the selfless woman. And talk about the ways in which that goes to the next step, the ways in which it leads to the persistence, because of the psychological underpinning, the persistence of patriarchy. Well, the most astonishing discovery was the third one. You're absolutely right, which was then what we saw is, and all psychologists now would really agree with this, and if you look at the infant research, you could see it, that the first response we have to lose, I mean, if you think about it, just in the course of a day or weeks or whatever, we move in and out of connection with ourselves and with other people. It's like the tide. It just goes on. But when we lose connection, our move is to repair the connection, or as therapists will say, repair the rupture, the break in the relationship. And then what we saw is that the initiation of children into the gender codes of patriarchy, patriarchal womanhood, what makes a girl a good woman, and what makes a boy a real boy or a real man, Uh, that what they do is they shame the capacity to repair. So that, for example, boys are told if they register the loss of connection and start to feel that loss and feel the sadness of it, there's a voice inside them that says, what are you? are you? Are you a girl? Are you gay? What do you need this relationship for? There are plenty of women in the world. You can have a new car. You can do this. Or with a girl, the, the, she's told if she wants to be the kind of girl that other people want to be with, she shouldn't say what she really feels and thinks. <laughs> you know, my favorite example of a girl saying what she really feels and thinks comes from, of all places, Jane Eyre. You know the Charlotte Bronte right. novel? So Jane is 10 at the beginning of the novel, and her Aunt Reed calls her a liar. And Jane says to her Aunt Reed, 
you say I'm a liar, I'm not. If I were a liar, I would say I love you, and I don't. (laughs) And it reminds me now of, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I I heard her, I think it was just yesterday, somebody was attacking her Green New Deal. And she said, you know, instead of feeling, you know, retreating and, and sort of whatever, she said, wait a minute, you didn't even read it. You didn't, you don't even know what it says. Before you attack me, you should go read it. And so, I mean, it's that voice. So if girls can't say what they're really feeling and thinking and boys can't register feelings that would call their so-called manhood into question, you've shamed the capacity to repair ruptures in relationships, so you make loss irreparable. And then, you know, patriarchy just, it starts to seem like how things are. Love is tragic. Relationships basically... You know, it's it's too much vulnerability or whatever. So that was our understanding, is that there is a very, very precise dynamic, which is part of the initiation of children into what it means to be a real boy or a good girl, meaning the kind of girl other people would want to be with, um, that really undercuts our human capacity uh, to repair the inevitable breaks in connection. And because so much of this is inculcated in the popular culture, it seems that it makes it so much harder to get at that, to get at that repair. Well, I think, you know, I I think you're absolutely right. I also would say that when you try to challenge these gender codes, you get a lot of pushback. I mean, and and I think, you see, I think it's playing out now in the public domain, which in, in a certain way, I mean, it's not, you know, I think actually, so we can see it now. There's something very hopeful about what's going on because I think it was always going on to some extent. And now it's really out in the open. I mean, we see unapologetic patriarchy. It's one reason why Trump is astonishing to many people, you know, because you think, don't you care about the facts? And he said, no, it's just. I'm, I'm the, I, I won the election. I'm the patriarch. I, it's what I say. It's what I feel. That's all I need to say. And so they, there it is. And then the other is, uh, you know, for democracy to work, for love to work, uh, for relationships to work, everyone has to have a voice. And so um, it's not that you don't have breaks in relationships or conflict, but we have, as humans, and all of the human sciences now are converging on this. I mean, there's a new book. Michael Tomasello has a new book out called uh, Becoming Human, about how as humans we are basically relational, empathic, cooperative beings. So if you want to set up a, a hierarchy where some humans are superior and some are inferior, you've got to knock out the empathy of the person on top, and you've got to knock out the voice of the people on the bottom, you know, so... And that's what patriarchy does. And when we talk about loss, we're to, you know, we, t- we tend to talk about it, and we have been talking about it in terms of loss of connection to individuals, but there's also a sense of loss from the, the, the sort of common good, a loss from the common wheel, and, and a loss of connection to society, which seems to underlie a lot of this. That's absolutely true. I think that's how you can understand. I mean, some of their... 
people who feel they don't have a voice in society or the the people who uh, have power or are in the government really don't hear them, don't care about them, don't listen to them. I mean, I think, you know, it, 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 it makes anybody angry not to be listened to. Also a loss of, of a time gone by, a loss of a world that, that they were comfortable with, that they knew, that they understood. Right, and, and what, they, what they expected, and now they see that world disappearing, and, and they get frightened, and they think that they, they don't know how their children are going to live. And Yeah, no, I think you... I mean, I think it's really helpful to understand that, because otherwise people can say, I don't understand how anyone could have voted for Trump. Well, I mean, if you want to understand, I think you have to start thinking in this way. And what impact does it have, do you think, the fact that all of this is so much faster nowadays, that all of this is speeded up at, in a way that is, that is arguably much more difficult for people to cope with? Well, I, I don't think people coped so well all the time in the past. So it's only worse now. (laughs) I mean, you know, I mean, there was an awful lot of racism and sexism, and uh, the 20th century, a lot of bad things happened. So, does any of this leave you optimistic about healing this breach? Yes, yes, that's what I say. I'm really surprised. I'm feeling rather optimistic these days. I mean, honestly. These women who are in the Congress, I mean, they, they remind me of the girls in my study. I think, well, my resistors are in the Congress now. <laughs> and, and I just wrote a, I gave a talk in Houston in November um, about straight men who are major filmmakers, I mean, making films that are in the mainstream, that really are resisting these old, old I mean, really questioning these old gender codes. Mm-hmm. So I think, I, you know, I think the resistance that I wrote about in children, I'm seeing it now in the public sphere and, you know, right at the mainstream, in the Congress and in, in the film industry. And, um, yeah, I'm optimistic. I mean, I, I, I'm not naive, mm-hmm. you know, because I think, I, I think this is a real fight about something very, very real, something very important, something that probably, you know, ultimately the future of the planet, the survival of the species, I mean, without being melodramatic. I mean, I think that we have a sense now that's what's at stake. Carol Gilligan, her new book is Why Does Patriarchy Persist? Carol, I thank you so much for spending time with us. You know, Jeff, it's just a great pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you.